0: Rachel Joyce. Amen. (laughs) You haven't heard me yet. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I, um, thank you for asking me to speak. It's a bit of a privilege. Um, I'm Rachel, I'm married to Jacques, as Neil said, and we have two children, Caleb and Robin. And we're also very, very proud to count Beatty and Heather as close family too. And by the way, I know that some of you think her name's Karen. But it's not, it's baity, okay? Just so you know, just correct that one. Um, and Christmas is getting closer, isn't it? Um, we're in Advent, we're in the countdown, it's okay to sing carols now, it doesn't feel too early anymore. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, it feels like the whole of society is counting down and waiting for this day, and we're well into Christmas preparations. Have you got your decorations up already? Um, Yeah, have you asked Alexa to play any Christmas carols? Uh, I had my first mince pie somewhere at the beginning of November. That's not too early, is it? Um, There's a little joke on the next slide because it is me. Um, Yeah, (laughs) Uh, I should read it for the the recording, shouldn't I? Christmas day is a lot closer than I realize. There are only three more doors left to open on my advent calendar. Um, And one more thing that I am really excited about this year, Um, this year, some of you will get where this is going, this year we had a plug socket installed on the front of our house. Right, so you know what that means, right? (laughs) We live just around the corner from a road called Lower Morden Lane, which is nothing special most of the year. But it gets a bit exciting this time of year because the houses on Lower Morden Lane go to town when it comes to Christmas decorations. You have never seen such a display of eye-watering, blinding Christmas lights and then it kind of overflows to all the kind of surrounding streets and areas so this year we've got a plug so we get to be part of it too. So this morning, I've got the privilege of sharing some of my thoughts on the season of Advent and justice and the link between the two. And Brian, last week, and Kim, the week before, gave some brilliant perspectives to us to chew on. So if you haven't heard, if you heard them speak, you'll probably find some of my themes familiar. And if you haven't, I'd really recommend you listen because they said a whole load of stuff way better than I can. Um, But now it's my turn, so let's get stuck in. Um, During Advent, we Christians turn our attention to the coming of our King. The Old Testament tells a story, God's story, of a world intentionally and purposefully created by God as good, but destroyed by sin. And it's a world waiting for restoration for a promised personified Saviour who would inaugurate this turnaround and redemption? So in Advent, we often travel back in time and we sit with the prophets as they waited hundreds of years before Jesus came. They were longing for the coming of the Saviour and His kingdom and His work of justice and of reconciliation and redemption for the whole of creation. So I'm going to look at read a couple of these passages. The first one is. Isaiah 42 verses 1 to 4 where Isaiah wrote, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on earth. And in his teaching, the islands will put their hope. And in Isaiah 9, Isaiah wrote, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So we, of course, we read and we hear these promises in retrospect. We know that Isaiah was talking about Jesus. We celebrate during Advent and during Christmas and we can be awestruck that God's rescue plan has taken place and we are now with a capital N, now part of it. But let's talk a bit about justice. The word appeared in both of those passages from Isaiah. Did you spot it? I tried not to lean on it too much, but probably did because it's our, it's our buzzword this month. Um, and it's, it's definitely a characteristic of God himself and it's a key element of his rule and reign over heaven and earth. But justice is a tricky term and it's loaded to the hilt with emotion and with bias, with politics, sometimes with pop culture. To a news journalist, justice means something really different to a police officer, perhaps. To an Afghan woman, I'd imagine it means something very different to a Taliban fighter. To a traffic warden, it probably means something very different to the rest of us. Um, we all carry our plate, our own plate, to this table. By that, I mean my understanding and yours is shaped by our experiences by our social status, by those we come into contact with, and by where we get our news from. So, and I think particularly in the Western world, we all have quite significant blind spots when it comes to justice, me and you all included. Now, I get paid for some of my time to work as a lawyer, and my my work (laughs) involves a lot of words, so I really like definitions. I love A good set of capitalized terms. So being true to my profession I think it's really important to define and to scope out what we're talking about. So when the Old Testament prophets, when Isaiah talked about justice, it is loaded with meaning but not because of the people's context but because of God's intentions. Justice in the Bible is usually interchangeable with the word shalom, which is a state of God's manifest, by that my like tangible, his evident goodness. It's a state where nothing is missing and nothing is broken, and where God's created order works together in harmony and flourishes. It's abundance of life, and it's satisfaction, contentment, The potential for complete fulfillment, its harmonious relationships and its physical well-being. There's no sickness or disease, no relational dysfunction or breakdown, no stress, no mental illness. And it's often accompanied by forgiveness. It is God dwelling in his world in the center of a free, righteous, loving community of people. It's rest for every part of God's creation. No wonder the prophets longed for it. I like it too. So let me put it like this. Justice and shalom are God's intentions being realized in concrete ways in the world. So, the link between Advent and justice. I found a picture, but we'll move on. Uh, as with everything else, shalom and justice starts and ends with Jesus. So now I'm going to turn to Colossians 1. If you've got a Bible, have a look. The Apostle Paul writes to a group of new Christians and he uses the most beautiful poem about Jesus. And because I like words, I've put up here the message version of the text by Eugene Peterson. I'm just going to read it. We look at this sun and we see the God who cannot be seen. We look at this sun and we see God's original purpose in everything created for everything, absolutely everything above and below, visible and invisible, rank after rank of angels. Everything got started in him and finds its purpose in him. He was there before any of it came into existence and he holds it all together right up to this moment. And when he comes to the church, he organises and holds it together like a head does a body. So spacious is he, so roomy, that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all the dislocated and broken pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death, his blood that poured down from the cross and you yourselves are a case study of what he does so the NIV says it's slightly shorter in verse 19 to 20 i'll just read it, it so for god was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him in jesus through him jesus to reconcile all things to himself whether things on earth or in things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So when I read that, that sounds a lot to me, like Jesus brings shalom, and he brings justice, and he shows us God. we have heard the churches in there, God's people, and this, he talks about space and rest and harmony for all of creation, and he talks about Jesus holding it all together, heaven and earth, visible and invisible, spiritual and human. All the dislocated and broken pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies. And there's restoration and there's reconciliation and there's the personal elements of forgiveness and right relationship with God and each other. It's such a beautiful poetic description of justice in action justice realized it's Jesus reigning and ruling over his kingdom of peace and Paul speaks as if the whole thing is done and dusted because Jesus died and because he was resurrected and this way he conquered evil and death so it's a magnificent picture but what does it look like on the ground well to answer that question let's consider what Jesus what did Jesus do If you think about it, Jesus, the bringer of God's justice, didn't actually major on any of the methods we might use in pursuit of justice. There were no law courts involved, no protests or rebellion is stirred up. He didn't seek out an audience with the influences in society. He didn't campaign for rights. As Isaiah foretold, he didn't shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. Even the story of his birth The arrival of the long awaited Saviour was surprising. Uh, There was a crowd of angels in the sky, in the night sky, in the middle of nowhere. That was quite a big clue. But other than that, it didn't look much like the birth of a new era of justice and righteousness that had been promised. If you just think a minute about the idea of God, the fullness of God dwelling inside a human being, his own created species. Invisible is now visible. Omnipotent is now a newborn baby. He was there at the beginning of time. He was at the moment of creation itself. He held everything together. He gave everything purpose. And then look at where he chose to take up residence. He didn't even choose a family with wealth or position or influence or a place of strength or power in society. He chose to be born in an outhouse, to a young unwed mother, separated from family, marginalised from local community, in an oppressed and conquered nation, on the raw edges of society. And he was born into absolute vulnerability, even on a human scale. Just think about the, the emptying of power, the way he just stepped away from his position and privilege, and he chose to do that. And he put himself with, identified with those, right on the edges of society. So in his letter to Philippians, Paul uses another beautiful hymn to to describe this. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a human being. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Paul is saying that Jesus identified to such a degree, he showed such solidarity with the poor and the marginalized, that it was actually impossible for people to see the difference, some of them, and he was actually executed as a common criminal. And it's so hard for us to understand what God did and what Paul wants us to understand here because Jesus is always at the center of everything. He's never on the margins. He had heaven's fanfare as his birth and then he always had crowds around him as an adult. But actually, if you read the Gospels carefully, digging a little bit deeper into the context as you go, you'll see that Jesus chased down people on the margins. He befriended outsiders, and he brought healing and restoration and hope to those people. When he found an audience with the rich and the privileged of society, he challenged them. And he so often exposed their heart motivations in that. This is Jesus carrying out the fullest expression of God's mission to restore shalom and inaugurate a kingdom of justice on earth as in heaven and a really strange dynamic happens. Where Jesus goes, to the edges, that becomes the focal point. And so the person that he raises up, however marginalized or underprivileged, they are healed and they're noticed and they're dignified. They become the centerpiece, the star. If you think about the, the story of the woman who touched the bottom of his coat and was instantly healed, if you think about the blind beggar who received his sight because Jesus stopped and heard him. Um, There's a story of the poor woman in the temple who gave just a small coin into the offering, but Jesus praised her for giving everything she had. Or the lepers who found their way back into society after being healed by Jesus. Or the children that he welcomed, Jesus welcomed, even though the disciples were trying to keep them away. Jesus gave dignity and humanity back to those who lacked these most basic gifts. God went to the edges of society, the margins, and the margins themselves were erased. Picture there. I I want my pictures to go up because I spent a long time looking for a picture of a rubber. (laughs) (laughs) I just just think that's such a simple but effective picture of how we can pursue justice in pursuit of Jesus and in imitation of his ways. So as a family, we like a good board game from time to time. We were playing the game of life recently and my poor mother-in-law only seemed to be able to roll a one or a all the way through the game and it just struck me how inherently unfair game was, it depends so completely on the spin of the wheel. Some earn big bucks and some go nowhere. There's a, this semblance of control, you get to choose which path you take, a career or a college, you get to choose at the beginning of the game what colour children you put in your, in, in your little car, whether they're pink or blue, and you even get to choose whether you have a cat or a dog but no one has real control. It's all dictated by the spin of the wheel. But I want to introduce you to another game we enjoy called Settlers of Catan. It's a good game, there's a picture there. Um, It's a game where players trade resources with each other to build their empire of roads and cities. Everybody starts in the game with the same potential to succeed or to win. There's some luck involved but there's also a lot of strategy and a lot of wheeling and dealing and you can really make your way if you play well. That is, unless you play like my daughter, who on every single trade that she gets to take part in, takes great joy in giving away what she has for nothing. my son is slightly older and he obviously takes full advantage of it um, but she really enjoys it. But what would you think of someone who did that in real life? Someone who gave away their rich, riches, their privilege, their status, their power, maybe even their control, knowing but not even caring that they were going to lose. Not even because they had plenty left but just because it helped put somebody else on the top. Maybe someone gave up a job that they needed because to somebody else who applied or they gave up a promotion that they actually deserved themselves. Or they wrote a fanta- that person wrote a fantastic article but let somebody else's name go on the bottom. Or they gave up a school place that their children had been tutored for and worked hard for and that they'd paid for, but they gave it to somebody else for free. It's quite bonkers, isn't it? It's quite a lovely sentiment. And it's quite, maybe, admirable philanthropy, but it's not really a realistic way to live. And it can't, that kind of behavior just completely distorts the game of life. And it actually probably goes, away our secular view, goes against our secular view of justice too. But Paul told the Philippians that that's exactly what Jesus did. And he goes even further than that because not only did Jesus give it all up, He didn't even pick them up again when others took advantage, when others perpetrated very severe injustices towards him. So Jesus didn't fight the injustice done to himself, but all the same, he embodied the messianic mission of demonstrating and ushering in the shalom of God. There's quite a tension for us to think through. and I would say, as followers of Jesus, we're called to walk the same road, to embrace our circumstances, whatever they might be, as conduits for the inbreaking of the kingdom of God and shalom for others, without grasping at our rights and privileges or even relinquishing them. So there's a challenging question for, for me, certainly. Do we conform to the patterns of this world? Do we seek promotion and do we embrace the systems that help us get there? If not for ourselves, maybe for our children or for those we love? Or will we allow God to expose and transform our attitudes and our motivations, our prejudices and our hearts? How often do we put ourselves in the same boat as those who are despised and left out, those who are treated as disposable? Or those whose dignity has been stolen or denied? If we're honest, do we put a psychological distance between us and them? Or do we suffer their injustices too as if it were done to us? Do we move closer to the margins so that the margins themselves are erased? We know that as followers of Jesus we're called to a different reality. But where do we start? Some, recently there was um, uh, a charitable fundraiser called The Big Sleep, Big Sleep Out, where people choose to sleep on the streets in order to raise money for homelessness, and it kind of reminded me a little bit of this, this heart where people are trying to understand what's what it's like themselves, people who have a home. So, it might look like that. It might look like getting involved in Food Bank. I was overwhelmed by Food Bank when we did that for a number of years. The way it doesn't just give out food as charity, but the underlying ethos of Food Bank is to uh, give dignity to the people that come in. Um, and often it's been stolen by their engagement with the systems and the benefits system and that. Um, and I love watching. Um, programs where Simon Reeves talks he has quite a lot of programs on the BBC because he highlights current issues where things are not right in a really thoughtful way and he focuses on individual people it makes me think that there must be many many more creative ways to restore humanity and dignity that reflect the goodness and the kindness and the justice and the shalom of God in and to our world and it 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 actually brings me back to Neil's sermon a few weeks ago where he talked about, I've written here, the starting point for living a life of justice is actually really simple and yet it's one of the most challenging things in the world. The starting point is just to see the person in front of you, for me to see the person in front of me and to see them and treat them with dignity and humanity as someone completely and deeply loved by God. Isaiah 42 says, a bruised reed he will not break. So every encounter with another person and with the world God created is an opportunity to let the shalom or the justice of God work its way a little deeper into our own heart too. Every encounter, it might be a small drop in the ocean of need, but it's where it starts. Justice is a relational thing and it's a discipleship thing. And in the spirit of Advent, it's also a prophetic proclamation. Because every time the Holy Spirit prompts you or I to do something that restores a little dignity and humanity to somebody else in Jesus' name, you're announcing that God's tomorrow has already broken in today in the person of Jesus. It's light shining in the darkness and chasing away the shadows. It's joining in with God's Colossians 1 mission to see the reconciliation of all things to himself. And in the vineyard, we would say we're a people of the presence of God. And so there's this challenge that just as Jesus did, we're called to go to the edges of society, go to the margins, and in doing so, we hope an act to see the margins themselves being erased. That's God's justice in action. So just to finish, I want to go back to Isaiah 42 and just to read it again. And uh, Isaiah said, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching the islands will put their hope. So, yeah. I guess my my hope and prayer for me and for all of us individually, for me personally and you personally, but also as a community of Christians, is that we really do take seriously and eagerly, continue to take seriously and eagerly God's invitation to partner with him and see his kingdom come through his spirit in us, and specifically with the encounters in front of us, The encounters with the person in front of us, and then in doing so, we're also transformed into the likeness of Jesus in our own hearts, so that we get to see in even greater measure all the dislocated and broken people and things, animals and atoms get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies through Jesus. I've spoken quite deliberately broadly because I think God's got a lot of creativity that I don't have and I didn't want to stop pinning it down and shutting things out. But I just wonder if maybe the Lord is already showing some of you specifics, people and situations, uh, inspiration. He may be showing you a need that you're like, oh, yeah, yeah. I can see that, I can see that becoming, you know, working out in that situation. So maybe just take um, a few moments now to take it to God while you've got a moment and ask him to show you what he wants you to do with that. And I think also maybe there's some people... Who, whether by circumstances or work environment or sickness, maybe by the system or workload, maybe by degenerative relationships, you feel like you've been robbed of your own dignity or your own sense of worth, struggling to, and and we need to pray. (laughs) We need to pray that God's kingdom would come now into your um, situation and heal and restore And the other sense I had is that maybe some of you here are struggling with a relationship and you'd really like God to help you see that person through his eyes and guide you forward through murky waters, whatever that relationship is. Um, So it'd be really good to, to pray with, if that's anyone, to pray with you. About that as well, and stand with you as we look to see God come into that space. Um, So, in a minute, we'll have space to pray. Um, So, come forward um, with a face mask on, and someone with a face mask on will come and pray for you. Um, Yeah, Tom and Amy. (laughs) mm <laughs>